Law enforcement is one of the noblest professions. It's probably also one of the most misunderstood. And if it's misunderstood, the only way to approach that is to try and get people to understand. Good morning and welcome to this month's edition of the FBI National Academy Associates Leadership APB podcast series. My name is Ray Ferris and I'm the Director of Education and Training for the Association. It's my pleasure to have joining us today, Julie Parker. Julie will be taking the lead on today's podcast. Her unique media career spans from an Emmy and Edward R. Murrow award-winning television reporter in Washington, D.C., to media director for two of our nation's largest police departments, a senior media advisor for the largest police association in the world, and a subject matter expert on crisis communications, social media, and media relations for the Naval Postgraduate School's Center for Homeland Defense and Security. Her team's subject matter experts offer guidance on crisis communications, public relations, media coaching and training, social media training, strategy and implementation, and communication audits. She is a regular instructor at the FBI National Academy and trains at retrainers across the country. Miss Julie, take it away. Thank you so much. And thanks for having me back on this podcast. It is actually an honor to be here. And I think sometimes that word gets overused, but it really means the world to me to be able to speak to all of the these NA wonderful people. And I've had the privilege of going down to Quantico for 10 years now and, and getting to meet with so many of these sessions. And it's awesome today to be able to interview someone else rather than to be on the end of getting interviewed. And I've brought to the table a 2009 FBI National Academy graduate, session 237. And not only is he that, but he's also now the first full-time employee for Julie Parker Communications. And I want to talk to this retired police chief about that transition. Um, But before we get to his transition from law enforcement into the private sector, I want to begin by welcoming Christopher Menino and talking to him about his experience at the N.A. Christopher, good to have you. It's great to be here. Thanks, Julie. Thanks, Ray. And walk us through what made you gravitate toward public communication all the way back in 2009. Well, I started law enforcement in 1997. And I think like a lot of new young cops, my focus was on operations, uh, tactical operations. I was on the SWAT team. And then I spent a lot of my career in the investigations division. I never envisioned myself focusing on communications. But when I was accepted to attend the NA, uh, I saw several courses on public communication. Um, Now, 2009 was before social media really took off. So um, there wasn't really a focus on that. But Penny Parrish was teaching media relations and um, Lieutenant Colonel Jim Vance was teaching uh, positive PR for law enforcement. I took those courses because I realized we were we were weak as an industry in communicating with the public. And even as an agency, we didn't have great communicators. So my goal was to, as I'd been taught throughout my career, turn a weakness into a strength. And I focused on something I wasn't really adept at at that time. And a lot of people at that time weren't adept at social media. When I first started going to Quantico in 2012, and I would ask each media class to raise their hands and say, how many of you are on social media professionally? How many of you are tweeting about your law enforcement agency's activities? And maybe a third of the hands in that room would go up. And they also looked at me like I was a little bit crazy for telling them that they should be tweeting about things such as homicides. Well, just most recently in February, I believe of this year, 
when I went back to one of those combined classes in the auditorium at the NA, and I asked that same question, how many of you are using social media for work? Only two hands in that room didn't go up. And there was something like 200 people in that room. That span of a decade, that change that occurred in that course of a decade is pretty remarkable. And you found extreme success in Park Forest, Illinois, due to your use of social media. Can you give us an explanation as to how a tiny department, relatively speaking to Chicago, could get the kind of positive PR due to social media that you got? Well, when I attended the NA in, in 2009, very few departments were on social media, but um, myself and a, a lot of my colleagues went back to our agencies and we jumped on that on that platform, uh, initially Facebook. And uh, there were no rules. It was the Wild West. There was no policy. There was no guidance. You just, you did what felt right. And a lot of mistakes were made along the way, but a lot of lessons were, were learned. So, you know, in the beginning, it was just trying to trying to communicate uh, without a whole lot of strategy. But as time went on, what we found was the, the more we were transparent, the more we talked about the great work being done by our officers, and, and the more we just expressed why we do what we do, the more the community responded positively. And so really, it was a feedback loop. We continue to tell the, the public what we do and how we do it and why we do it. And we saw this connection grow. And our following grew far beyond a tiny Chicago suburb. It, it grew to the entire region. And in some cases, we would have content that would get seen across the country and across the world. And we weren't the only ones doing it, but certainly in our region, we were one of the few doing it, one of the few doing it well. And so we would get uh, definitely outsized media attention for the positive stories we were telling and also how we handled crises and, and when things would go wrong. And I want to touch on that piece because that's generally the most challenging thing when it comes to social media. Many, not just law enforcement agencies, as we know, many organizations, corporate America, nonprofits, whatever, will not want to get out there on social media and talk about the thing that's gone wrong, that that reputational hit in some cases. We have a client that we're working on together now that just announced through social media, a fatal dog shooting. Now I can imagine the hair going up on people's arms right now as, as, as I say that, because we know what kind of world we live in. We know the challenges that law enforcement is facing. We were, at least I was extremely pleasantly surprised by the reaction to sharing that negative news on social media. Give us a, a glimpse into how you wrote that, the way that you wrote it, and if you were surprised by the outcome. Well, when we when we teach our class on crisis communication, we actually use a scenario of a, of a dog shooting. And the reason we do is because oftentimes in law enforcement, we don't see that as being as big of a deal, maybe as an officer involved shooting of a, of a person. But the public reaction to shooting a dog can be very drastic at times. So that's a great scenario to get students used to tackling a challenging issue and, and embracing uh, the message to the public. And so using the philosophy that, that we try and teach our students in class, get good news out quick, but bad news out quicker, uh, we wanted to make sure the message was ready to go and ready to post right away. And there's a couple components to it. The first is, is and it should, it should go without saying, but honesty what honestly occurred. Make sure you review the video. Make sure we're accurately describing. Um, we want to be careful in our language. Something as simple as not naming the breed of the dog, uh, especially when it's something like a pit bull or something that's perceived as an attack dog. And because when you name that, often the focus will become then on the breed of the dog and not on the situation. And then just accurately uh, describing what the officer's 
would have experienced. In this case, um, one of the officers said that he felt the dog bite his pants leg as he fell to the ground. Well, that's important. The dog didn't just rush them. The dog actually made contact. We want to include that. But then we also want to include an empathy statement. Because even if the officers are justified in doing it, at the end end of the day, it's not the dog's fault. Dogs do what dogs do. It's the owner's fault for letting that dog out. And we do feel bad for the dog. And the community appreciates seeing that we recognize, hey, someone lost a family pet. Even if it's justified, we can recognize that this was a a bad situation all around. You would never say this, but I'm going to say it. The reason why that post did as well as it did is because of that empathy statement. How could you encourage others to get to the point where they're including that in their messaging beyond just what's now sadly become a cliche, thoughts and prayers? The way you wrote that, the community responded in a, in a very large way. There were multiple people specifically commenting on the writing that we did on behalf of this department, and by we, I mean you, and with something like 40 to 50 likes of that comment saying, They liked that empathetic message. How do you encourage others to write that way? Well, I think oftentimes in law enforcement, we take an approach that we have to be very stoic um, in our public communication. And as as we often say in class, it's actually the opposite. We need to humanize the badge. We need to show the public that we're essentially no different from them. We have different training. We're we're professionals at, at what we do. But we're moms and dads, sons and daughters. We're, we're flesh and blood, just like everybody else. And it's okay to acknowledge that it's sad that a dog got killed, even if it was completely justified. A caution, though, is we never want to apologize for an action because that creates some liability. So it was very strategic in how we wrote it. It wasn't an apology. It was just an acknowledgement that dogs and, and pets mean a lot in our lives and in acknowledging that it's a tragedy when, when we lose one. Simply that alone, w- even without an apology, sh- kind of shows that we're, we're human, we take this seriously, and that we're just not callously out there shooting dogs every chance we get. More and more law enforcement leaders are, are gravitating toward LinkedIn. That's exactly where you and I met in 2018. And if you could share just a glimpse of, of how this relationship came to be and why it's important for not only law enforcement leaders to be on LinkedIn, but to use it. Yeah, so many people on LinkedIn are just lurking. Um, There's nothing wrong with seeing what's going on in the world, but most law enforcement leaders I know envision a life outside of law enforcement. And I'd really encourage them, increase that connection uh, in the real world, in the physical world, but also online and, and platforms like LinkedIn. Increase that connection beyond just law enforcement. It's so easy for us to stay connected to other law enforcement leaders. I mean, when I see a LinkedIn profile and they've got that NA flag in the background, it's almost immediate. I want to connect with them. Same. But it's also important to connect outside of that group, outside of law enforcement. You know, with a focus on communications, I saw that that you were actively communicating, uh, that you were actively um, involved in public communication. Guest speaking at the NA, I think was what probably initially caught my my attention. I thought, oh, here's someone I want to be connected to. And then it was just a matter of seeing each other's content and seeing that we had a similar approach to transparency and accountability in in communication. Um, And then from there, I think we just decided, hey, let's try and teach a course together. And the rest is history. Yeah, the first one, we're both probably looking at each other like, oh, how's this going to go? How's this going to go? Well, it's it's worked out very well. Um, and, and we enjoy doing what we're doing, which is going across the country, teaching law enforcement agencies what, what we preach. And our goal is to go international. So if anyone international is listening, give us a call. All right, let's get into that next piece. We, we meet on so- social media in 2018. Well, now, fast forward to 2022, you've made this tremendous leap of faith 
leaving law enforcement and coming into the private sector, but to continue your work in law enforcement, media relations, crisis communications, and social media. For your friends at the NA, and even those you don't know, who are thinking about taking the leap just just to leave law enforcement, what have you learned about this process? And be careful what you say. Well, first of all, make sure you accomplish what you want to accomplish in your law enforcement career. And for me, I I did that. I rose to the rank of chief of police. Uh, I was fortunate to grow up in a great organization. Um, I was able to lead that organization for almost five years. I completed 25 years of service. But I always knew that there had to be something after law enforcement for me personally. Uh, I have a lot of respect for people who are able to stay in it for 30, 35, 40 years. I just knew that at some point uh, I would cross that finish line. And for me, um, that 25 year mark was it. I had been very successful in in making connections, um, again, both in the real world, but also online. Our teaching together grew, our consulting together really grew. And it just seemed a natural transition. But that natural transition, again, that that came through a lot of effort. And and when I say effort, I'm not suggesting that networking was uh, done in a Machiavellian, self-promoting kind of a way. In fact, I believe the key to networking is is giving freely to others um, without any expectation. But but doing that, knowing that if you're that type of a a person, takes that kind of approach, at some point in time, it's going to come back around. And so um, I was strategic in creating connections and in trying to build relationships. But at the end of the day, it felt very natural when it was time to, to make that leap because all that groundwork had been laid. What does your your Monday through Friday, sometimes weekends, but not often, what does your Monday to Friday look like now compared to six months ago? Well, let's be honest, it's more weekends uh, <laughs> we, we might suggest. That's um, successful. <laughs> yeah. So, I, you know, I'm, I'm able to spend more time with my family, which is a, which is a great benefit. Previously, I had a 45-minute drive to work, so it's an hour and a half each day. That's eliminated, and with $5 gallon gas, that's another benefit of not having to get in that car and go to work. But um, it's more just having the flexibility and being able to do some work. Uh, I might work on some social media content. I might build a PowerPoint presentation for our next training, doing some networking. Um, It's always different. It's always varied, kind of like law enforcement was, but without the stress of having to worry about something happening at two o'clock in the morning and me being directly responsible for it. It It was great having that responsibility during that time, but it's also great being able to focus more on a, on a mission without having that, that stress as well. So it's, um, it's a, you know, a lot of people with a pandemic were able to work from home and have experienced that now. Um, and even some of us in law enforcement, we, we had a period where we were rotating among my command staff working from home. Um, but to be able to do it all the time, aside from travel, the biggest benefit really is, is that flexibility. I'm able to see my first grader get off the bus from school every day. Um, able to have coffee with my wife in the morning before I get rolling and fire up the computer. So lots of upside, very little downside. And your four-year-old often joins our meetings to pop in and show me her twirly dress. Yes, she does. She loves Julie Parker. <laughs> what surprised you about the shift from law enforcement to this work? You know, I, and I think a lot of people listening might understand this. It was immediately a decompression, uh, a removal of the stress. We were a very active police department. We were in, in Cook County, which is the same county as Chicago. We we faced all the issues Chicago faces just on a somewhat smaller scale. Uh, so we're, we were dealing with shootings frequently, a lot of a lot of crime, a lot of issues. And to simply be able to close that chapter was a relief of stress. And so 
I think the biggest surprise is not realizing how much stress I was under while I was in it. Uh, but once it was gone, it was really eye-opening how stressful it was having that phone able to go off and often and going off 24 hours a day for, for another issue. And again, I don't, I don't regret it. It was, a, it was a great career. I'm very proud of my law enforcement career, but there's no doubt it takes a toll. What's challenging for you now in the private sector as compared to some of the things you just listed as a police chief? Because you want to be challenged. You're like that. Yes. And, you know, I'm fortunate that we we have challenges. We have communications. I mean, if you, if you think about it, what we do is we connect with law enforcement agencies who have communication challenges and we essentially adopt their issues to help them communicate. So those challenges are still there, but it's not taxing because at the end of the day, it's not, uh, it doesn't fall on our shoulders, right? I'm not wearing that hat anymore. Um, and I'm able to help craft that message because I believe in what we do in law enforcement. I believe that that 99% of what we're doing out there is great work and I'm helping agencies share that, which has always been a passion of mine since I returned from the NA. So yeah, the, the, the challenges are still there. They just land in a different way. And your wife feels more comfortable knowing your working from home as compared to on the street where anything could happen. She does. She does. But it creates a new challenge when it's, hey, honey, can you come do this for me real quick? <laughs> Just real quick. Whole new set of challenges. <laughs> Let's go back to your experience at the NA. And one of the highlights for you was the bond you were able to form with an international student. And that bond remains today. Yeah, so uh, we had a we had a student from Afghanistan. Um, they flew him out with just clothes on his back. They gave him a gift card to Walmart when he got here to buy some supplies, and he really had had nothing. And you know, I made a lot of friends with the international students. To me, that was one of the one of the highlights was meeting law enforcement leaders from across the world. We we remained friends throughout all this time. But when the the, the Taliban took over and there was the fall of the Afghan government, um, he found himself in a very difficult situation because he was a, a diplomat outside of Afghanistan, but but in an unfriendly country. And he was essentially stranded. So he was one of the last Afghan NA graduates to be able to be re relocated. Some of my classmates and I picked up that, that mantle to try and get him relocated here to the US. And it took several months. It took him being on a lily pad, they called it, or a, a host country for a few months until he can get relocated. But, you know, about six months later, he finally made it here to the U.S. And um, I had a recent training through Julie Parker Communications in New Jersey to a Chiefs of Police Association. And while I was there, I was able to stop in and see him and his wife and his his kids. And it was just it was amazing to see them safe and, and living a new life. It's so awesome. What would you say is the the greatest challenge that law enforcement faces right now to get back to this, to the media question, what do they face when it comes to media and social media, just communications in general with the people that sworn to serve and protect? Well, what, one of the biggest challenges is that we live in this polarized society. The analogy we often give in class is that there's, there's a group on the far right that will support us no matter what, a group on the far left that no matter what we do, we're the villains. But when we communicate, we're really looking for that broad group in the middle who just wants to know the facts, just wants to be able to make up their own mind. They're, you know, everyone has their biases, but they're not at the extremes. And remembering to focus on that, that broad public who really just wants transparency, accountability. And I, I truly believe this. If we give them that, I think most people will support us most of the time. And here's the reality. We're, we're not right all the time. There's times when law enforcement makes mistakes, and I think it's okay to call that out as well. But the majority of the time, I think there's, there's great men and women doing an incredibly tough job for not nearly enough recognition. 
And we're, when we're able to communicate on their behalf, we're really able to, as I sometimes say, put, put some ballistic protection around them from these negative vitriolic type of, uh, of attacks that occur on social media and in the media. We can't protect them from everything, but if we're communicating well, it's almost like having a shield up for them to absorb some of that. And I think that's one of the benefits of, of having strategic and well thought out public communication. You had a great relationship with the media in Park Forest, Illinois. What did you learn from them specifically with these reporters that you interacted with that you would encourage other police chiefs to consider? I would just say that the, the media is not the enemy. Yes, there, there's bias in in the media at times, but, but there's bias everywhere. A, a lot of it is simply they don't know. They don't know our job. They don't understand. They're a part of society. They, they see what society sees. And so they approach it with, with preconceptions. And so our job sometimes is to educate. And I found that most of them are open to that education. Most of them are open to having a, a conversation. So they're not the bad guy. And, and in fact, look at our look at our Constitution. The First Amendment is the freedom of speech and the freedom of press. They're, they're an essential part of society. So we might not always like how they approach things, but if we try to approach them open-minded, assisting where they can, helping them where, where we're able, and trying to have a good relationship, our public communication will be much easier, even when maybe they're sending out a message we don't particularly like. And as a former reporter in Washington, D.C., I can tell you some of my favorite police chiefs were the ones who were devoted to transparency. I have great respect for Charles Ramsey, who's now, now he's a famous TV star uh, talking about a variety of law enforcement issues. But when he was a police chief in D.C., I just looked at him like, this, this guy's something special. He does something differently uh, that not all police chiefs do. And that really can have an impact on the coverage of your department. I'm going to make an extra step or two to try to perfect my story when when I'm working with a police chief who clearly wants to work back with me. So I, I just wanted to share that. Final note on crisis communications as it relates to law enforcement today. Is there a trend that you see or something that you can identify for law enforcement leaders when it comes to the, the thing that's breaking? So it could be something very obvious like an active shooter, and that's certainly a kind of crisis. But there's also those crises that are reputational hits where the, where the department has in some way done something wrong and it's not yet public facing, but it's going to become a crisis. Yeah. And, and I would reiterate that my biggest fear to chief, as a chief was not us doing something wrong. It was us doing something right, but it being perceived as wrong because it's very difficult to communicate with the public when they believe you've done something wrong and you haven't. It's much easier to go out and say, you know what, we messed up. But I think the, the key is you have to have a plan before the crisis hits. It is too late to wait for a crisis to figure out how you're going to handle a crisis. That means making sure you have people who are trained to communicate, that you have a crisis communication plan, and that you generally know how you're going to handle it. When, when we would tabletop once a year, we'd tabletop a critical incident, and our PIOs were in the room. We had public communication was a key component of the tabletop. So often we focused on operations. But a, a, a law enforcement agency can get the operations right, but lose the PR battle because they don't communicate it well. And so that really has to be a critical component is laying that foundation of, of training, preparedness, and essentially being as ready for talking about the incident as your officers are for handling the incident. I'll give you the last word. Anything that we haven't touched upon that you want to make sure these NA folks listening hear? No, I would just reiterate that, that look... 
Law enforcement is one of the noblest professions. It's probably also one of the most misunderstood. And if it's misunderstood, the only way to approach that is to try and get people to understand. And we do that through open communication. And I've been such a big advocate of, of open public communication for that very reason. We've got incredible people wearing the uniform in this country. Their story deserves to be told. And for me, I was proud to tell it at my agency, and I'm proud to help other agencies tell it now. Oddly, we're both about to pick up and move our families to out-of-state locations. I'm headed to North Carolina. You're headed to Florida. Anything you want to say to the folks in Florida as you get ready to become a, a resident of the Sunshine State? Yeah, I can't, I can't wait to meet you, and I can't wait to say goodbye to negative wind chill factors. <laughs> Christopher Menino, thank you so much for joining us on the FBI NA podcast. Appreciate it. Thanks, Julie. Thanks, Ray. Thank you both so much for your time and sharing this valuable insight with us. For more information on law enforcement, social media, public relations, leadership, and crisis communications, please go to julieparkercommunications.com. And this concludes this episode of the FBI National Academy Associates Leadership APB. Please join us again next month for another edition of our podcast series. Until then, stay safe and be well.